Yes, we're back. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. My name is James Paniki. I'm an MLEX senior editor with our Asia-Pacific team. And let me welcome you to what is shaping up as a very interesting program indeed. In just over 10 minutes from now, we'll be crossing to Europe to ponder what happens when privacy regulators in different EU member states don't see eye to eye on how to manage key enforcement decisions. And if you were wondering whether this has anything to do with the Irish privacy enforcers' management of those global tech companies that have made Dublin their European pied-à-terre, well, the short answer is yes, it does, as Sam Clark will tell us very, very soon. First up, though, some old-school journalism from MLEX. Our reporters across North America have teamed up to work out why it is that officials within the Federal Trade Commission, which is one of the two government agencies working on antitrust matters in the US, are so unhappy. We know they're unhappy because surveys have told us so. But why has the disquiet spiked under the leadership of Lena Khan? Is it just institutional resistance to change, or does it go deeper? Mike Swift is MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent, and he has overseen this report, which first appeared on FTC Watch, which is MLEX's sister publication. And he joins us now from San Francisco. So, uh, Mike, it's a long, in-depth piece of reporting that we're talking about. So maybe walk me through it uh, one step at a time. What did you find out and how did you go about doing that? Yep. So this was kind of an old-fashioned shoe leather type of journalistic investigation. Um, We basically were prompted when, uh, at the end of April, um, the FTC released uh, the findings of a survey of the staff that showed really dramatic declines in the level of trust uh, the staff had in the senior leadership. And I mean, these were just stunning numbers. They went from like 80% of the people saying, um, I believe senior leadership uh, has integrity and I trust them, went down to like 40% in one year. And it was just apparent that there was something very dramatic going on at the staff. We'd heard rumblings of that. And so we started contacting both current and former members of the staff and, and talking to them on background. Um, most people spoke to us off the record. A few people went on the record. One person who had been a veteran, 27-year veteran at the FTC, spoke at a recent commission meeting and, and basically sort of talked about this uh, very painful rift between the staff and senior leadership, the political appointees and their people. And, you know, what we found was just uh, that uh, there's been a real trend of surge of departure of senior staff members to go to the private sector. And that while that departure, that exodus has not been driven entirely by this rift, uh, that's been a factor in the departure of everybody and the decision to depart. So it's uh, kind of eye-opening, especially, um, you know, that the strength of the things people had to say. Now, assuming that there is a link between these departures and this unhappiness uh, among staff and uh, Lena Khan and her senior leadership, what do you believe is the top mistake that has been made by Khan? Well, I think it was really putting ideas in front of people, and she has great ideas. Um, I interviewed her today, actually, as we're recording this podcast, and the brilliance of her mind, I think, is something that is really 
eye-opening. And it was the first time I'd interviewed her and I was just uh, struck by the brilliance of her ideas, how, how quickly she thinks and uh, the force of her ideas. But um, that's not the same thing as effectively running an organization with over a thousand people that has very um, deep-seated and long-going traditions. And um, I think even senior people in, in Khan's uh, orbit will admit that um, they may be overlooked uh, the need to really make connections with the staff. They waited two months in some cases to talk to, to even have a handshake meeting with some of the senior staff members. And um, there's a feeling among the staff that what had been very much of a grassroots up type of organization where the staff did investigations, made recommendations to the commissioners who then decided whether they would proceed has become very hierarchical and top down. And that's really um, been a big problem in the eyes of many staff members. Well, what was the most surprising part of the feedback that you got from FTC staffers? You know, I was just shocked by the level of emotion. Uh, I did not expect that. Some of these interviews, they would go on really long. And I I just felt like I was a therapist, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it was like, go to my couch, you know, people were just so upset. And so many of these people have been there for 10, 15, 20 years or longer, and they love the agency. There's a real sense of mission there that, you know, you give up the higher salary you could make as a lawyer in the private sector at a firm or in-house in a company. And you do that because you're trying to make the world better. And people really believe that very deeply in their hearts, and they've devoted decades to doing that. So now when they feel like uh, the basis of their doing that has been upset, they got very, they're angry. I mean, I, just the, the level of sadness, sometimes it felt like kind of an angry grief, but just the, the strength of the emotion was really what really surprised me. I, di- I didn't expect that, and I've re- rarely enco- encountered that in my career in, in doing stories like this. Okay, so what lessons should the leadership of the FTC take from your report? Well, you know, I think they've already started to learn those lessons. <clears throat> One of the really big mistakes they made at the beginning was within a week of Lena Khan taking over, they basically instituted this moratorium on the staff speaking in public about any FTC business. And, and essentially it was um, viewed as a gag order within the agency. For some groups, this had real career effects that, for example, economists need to be able to engage in academic conferences. They need to publish papers. And so it really affected their careers. And and um, there was an impact on departures in the, the Bureau of Economics. But Beyond that, the FTC has always had an educational mission with the private sector. And um, the chief of um, a very large law firm uh, that uh, works a lot with the FTC um, kind of called that out to me, uh, Lisa Soto, who I interviewed and quoted in the story, where she said, you know, we're essentially handicapped. We're flying blind because of this moratorium, this gag order on the staff, you know, we don't know where the FTC is going. And that's not good for anybody. Business doesn't want to break the law if they can help it. You know, most businesses anyway, and they want to comply with the law. But if they don't know where a regulator is going, that's a problem. And I, and I think that um, that a gag order was just a tragic mistake. It was recently rescinded by Khan's chief of staff, Jen Howard, in a very contrite letter where um, uh, which was leaked to us and where she apologized and great about that. She didn't mean to 
to uh, imply that there was no trust of the staff. But this moratorium went on for almost an entire year. It wasn't like, you know, this went on for a month and then retrenched. They waited, they went a whole year. So I think they've started to learn those lessons, but uh, it's going to be hard to overcome uh, the deficit they started with. Okay, so much for the impact on FTC officials. But what about the impact on consumers in this rift between the staff and senior leadership? I think the easiest way to answer that is that we don't really know yet. Uh, one of the critics, uh, the former acting chief of the Bureau of Competition, Bureau of Consumer Protection, excuse me, Daniel Kaufman, uh, I interviewed him and he said, you know, I honestly, um, even though I've been critical about um, the new administration at the FTC after I left, uh, I can't say that this fall off in enforcement cases that we've seen is due to uh, the rift with the staff. You know, we don't know and we don't know how it's going to play out. Um, uh, the chair has, as, as uh, she said in her interview with us today, clearly has not backed off at all on her ambitions of, you know, really kind of waking up, making making the FTC a real tiger and not a paper tiger and enforcing antitrust and privacy in the United States. And, you know, we'll see if she can do that. You know, I people have short memories, you know, if they learn their lesson, may, you know, maybe they can turn things around. And they, there are signs that they're starting to do that. Um, uh, but um, she definitely has her work cut out for her. So we'll see what happens. Mike, this is a fascinating story. Thank you so much for uh, putting it together. Uh, and thanks also to our colleagues at FTC Watch for publishing it. Let's uh, catch up again soon. Thanks, James. Mike Swift is MLEX's global digital risk correspondent, and he was speaking to us from San Francisco. And I'd urge you to read this report, which first appeared on FTC Watch, but has now been unshackled from the paywall. And you'll be able to find it at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. It was written by Mike Swift, Michael Acton, Max Fillion and Curtis Eichelberger from MLEX with FTC Watch's Kathleen Murphy. And uh, I think it's a reminder of the great work that is done by Lizette Heath and the FTC Watch team in Washington, D.C. We'll also post a link to Mike Swift's subsequent interview with Lena Khan. Okay, thank you very much for making it this far. You're with MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki. And in just a moment, we'll be taking a look at how clashes among EU data protection regulators are being managed and why it is that that process is facing some significant challenges. Now, I'm obliged to tell you that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Where possible, please leave a review because they help us spread the word. Now, put yourself in the collective shoes of the European Data Protection Board. That's the body that has to oversee disputes among EU data protection regulators. It's a tough gig, particularly because the cross-border disagreements aren't just petty turf wars, but can also be clashes over how to deal with some of the world's largest and most powerful digital players. On the upside of all of this is the fact that our London-based data privacy and security correspondent Sam Clark has been following these developments and he joins us right now. So, uh, Sam, for context and obviously for listeners who might not follow EU privacy policy with the same unbridled enthusiasm as you do, um, what is 
the GDPR dispute resolution mechanism. Why is it significant? Why do we care? Uh, so the dispute resolution mechanism relates to the one-stop shop, uh, which is a quite important part of the GDPR. It's one of the most novel parts of the law. Um, basically, it means that uh, regulators uh, have to get sign-off from other EU regulators in cross-border cases. Um, the other regulators can object to the decision made by the original regulator. Uh, the original regulator is decided by the place where the company in question has its EU headquarters. Um, those other regulators can object, and if they basically can't settle their differences, they can't agree on what the decision should look like, uh, it goes through to the Article 65 dispute resolution mechanism. And it's significant because, sort of by definition, uh, the most contentious cases go through to that stage. So the cross-border cases are kind of the biggest, um, and the most complicated and difficult ones can't be agreed upon, and therefore they go through to this dispute resolution mechanism. Um, and it's also the place where the differences between the different regulators, um, which I think we'll get onto later and maybe is, is quite significant, um, it's kind of where they're most starkly highlighted. Um, we, we've seen it in some of the uh, information that's come out of the European Data Protection Board as well later. And let's talk about the European Data Protection Board. Uh, what role does it play in all of this? Um, so the European Data Protection Board is it's an umbrella body. It actually consists of all the EU data protection authorities and it has a few sort of full-time permanent staff as well. Um, on a kind of day-to-day basis, it's important because it produces guidance, um, opinions and so on, and it holds a, a regular plenary meeting as well. Uh, but it, in, in this instance, in relation to the dispute resolution mechanism, it's important because basically it considers all the objections and the disagreement between the regulators and it makes essentially makes the final decision. Okay, so let's talk about the GDPR dispute resolution mechanism. How many times has it actually been used and in what sort of cases? So far... It's actually only been used two times. Uh, That's kind of officially, formally been used two times. Uh, That's in cases against Twitter and WhatsApp, uh, both brought by the Irish Data Protection Commission. They've been completed, and when they are completed, as I said, the European Data Protection Board releases details of all the objections, um, which is very interesting and, as I said, kind of helps highlight some of the differences and the disagreements uh, that the um, EU regulators have had. Um, And then recently we reported that Two more cases have gone through to this process. Uh, That's into French hospitality company Accor and also Google. Uh, And then on top of that, there are two more, which Helen Dixon, the head of the Irish Data Protection Commission, uh, has told me are going to go into the process. They actually may be there as we speak now, but we don't know for sure. Uh, Those are into Instagram and Facebook. And then finally, there's two more, and this is not confirmed. It's kind of a an educated assumption. Uh, they look like kind of prime contenders to go into this process. They relate to WhatsApp and Instagram. Uh, and the reason that they look like strong contenders to go into it is because they are essentially identical cases to the earlier Facebook one that I mentioned, which Helen Dixon has said will go into it. Um, so there's kind of a, a pattern there which you might be able to notice, which is uh, they mostly relate to big tech companies, and they mostly come out of Ireland, Accor being the sort of notable exception there, although it is still a, a very big company. It's the largest hospitality company in Europe. Well, what's the significance of the Irish connection there, of the fact that the Irish Data Protection Commission's decisions uh, have been going to the dispute resolution mechanism? Um, so this actually kind of 
goes to the heart of, of one of the biggest debates around the GDPR, kind of one of the biggest controversies, um, which is uh, to do with the big tech companies. Um, most big tech companies have their European headquarters in Dublin. In fact, all of them except for Amazon. And that means under the rules of the GDPR that the Data Protection Commission is their main data protection regulator, the, the lead supervisory authority kind of in the, in the jargon. And it's been criticised a lot. Critics say it's been slow and it's been soft on big tech. And obviously the, the significance of big tech for data protection is that it's kind of considered to be, those companies collectively are considered to be the most significant, important kind of privacy and data protection battleground. As I say, it's been criticised for, for kind of, people say it's been too slow and too soft. Some of that is fair, some of that maybe is unfair. They essentially have been burdened with the biggest task under the GDPR. And, and it is arguably under-resourced as well, Yes, right? yeah, they have been getting sort of bigger resources as they as as the GDPR every year I think since the GDPR has come in they have got slightly bigger but it's still small it's about around 200 staff now and I think getting up towards 250 over the next sort of year or so that's pretty small compared to the collective resources of the big tech companies and in relation to the dispute resolution mechanism sort of critics have pointed to this as proof that Ireland is failing essentially because they're saying well these cases coming out of Ireland, the other EU regulators don't like them, therefore they must be getting it wrong. But kind of the way I see it is that that maybe is slightly backwards because essentially these cases are the most contentious and that is because they relate to big tech companies and the largest data controllers in the world that do the most controversial stuff. So inevitably they are the ones that will be contentious, that, that there'll be some disagreement about. And it just so happens through no fault of the Data Protection Commission, that they are based in Ireland. Um, I should say that the, the, the Google case that I mentioned earlier um, is a bit of an outlier in that. Um, Article 65 cases are typically where the regulators can't agree on the sort of content of the um, enforcement, but they can also be about where they can't agree on which regulator should be responsible for handling the case. And, and that's what's happened with the Google case. Um, they can't agree if it should be the French or the Irish. Now, how challenging are these types of decisions for the European Data Protection Board and can they be appealed, more importantly? Um, yeah, so it is a big task. It has one month to decide, uh, but that can be extended to two months. Um, and in both of the completed cases so far, it's chosen to use that extension. And Andrea Jelinek, who is chair of the European Data Protection Board, uh, told me in a recent interview that Deciding these cases is the, uh, quote, most stressful work for for their staff. Sort of by, by their nature, inevitably, these cases are, are complicated and contentious. And, you know, they, they drag on for years and then suddenly they get one month or maybe two months to decide. Um, so it's not very easy for them. And kind of technically, legally, the EDPB, the, the board, doesn't make the final, final decision. It, it goes back to the original regulator. But in practice, it sort of gives such a strong direction about what decision should be taken, that in effect, the European Data Protection Board is responsible. And that definitely seems to be what WhatsApp thinks, because as I said, those first two that are completed, one was against Twitter, one was against WhatsApp, and WhatsApp has uh, applied to the EU General Court um, to have the decision annulled. So it's sort of like an appeal. Um, And that's the first of its kind. We, We won't see a result in that for a while. But uh, WhatsApp's pleas to the court, its arguments essentially um, are public and they've they've said lots of things, some of them quite technical, but one of them was that the European Data Protection Board has kind of overreached. It's gone beyond um, 
what it's allowed to do. And so that's going to be a very interesting case to see, kind of flesh out how these cases are supposed to work and what the European Data Protection Board can actually do. Well, given that the European Data Protection Board is under some pressure on that front, I wonder if this system of cross-border enforcement uh, and uh, the, the dispute resolution mechanism, I wonder if they're likely to change any time soon, whether we might be looking for alternatives. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the EDPB, the European Data Protection Board, it, it recently announced plans to, to, quote, streamline Article 65, the dispute resolution mechanism. Um, Andrea Yelenek, the chair, she told me that that essentially means getting issues clarified before they reach that point. There, there are all sorts of cooperation and mechanisms already, um, but they kind of want to improve those. And the hope is that closer cooperation and better clarification earlier on in the process will mean that cases don't actually arrive at that point at all. Um, and those that do will be easier for the European Data Protection Board to sort of to actually handle. Um, and those streamlining plans formed part of a a wider agreement um, between regulators to cooperate on cases of strategic importance. Um, I haven't really defined what those cases will be. And when I asked Andrea Yelenek about it, she sort of said it, it really can depend case by case. But given they're of strategic importance, it's fair to assume there'll be big contentious cases, just like the cases that end up at Article 65. So um, there seems to be some impetus to reform the existing system. Um, it's um, sort of important to note that generally it's working, there's been about slightly more than 2,000 cross-border cases um, and so far only a handful have actually gone to this process but even a few can really clog up the system um, and so I think that's why there's some motivation for them to, to make some changes. Sam, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for your coverage of this issue and let's catch up again very soon. Thanks very much. Sam Clark is an MLEX reporter covering data privacy and security from London. And his story on this issue is ready for you to read and enjoy. MLEXmarketinsight.com is where you need to be. That's MLEXmarketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for all of the very latest reporting and analysis from MLEX journalists around the world. Alas, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much for your company. We do appreciate it. And we promise to be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Panicki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, see you soon. Bye for now.